Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hello, everybody. My name is Joan L., and I'm a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. And I'm honored and privileged to be here tonight to share with all of you my experience, strength, and hope, and what brought me and keeps me in the rooms of Al-Anon family groups. I married an alcoholic. Isn't that good enough? (laughs) And I'm so grateful that I married an alcoholic. Sometimes when I sit in an Al-Anon room and say that, you know, um, the newer people look at me and say, oh, God, (laughs) you know. But I am really grateful that I did or I wouldn't be here tonight. You know, my my life began in the Bronx, and I'm not going to go all the way back because when you get to be 78, you got a long way back, baby. (laughs) And I'm not going all the way back. I'll start from the beginning where my... Al-Anon began, and it began, um, it'll be 52 years, April 14th, 1962. (laughs) And I was brought to the rooms by my newly sober husband. He was three months sober, and he says, I can't stand this anymore. He couldn't stand it anymore. I was the one that was going through hell at home, waiting for him to come home from meetings because he was out every single night. I figured when he got sober, he'd be home every night. But it didn't happen because every night he'd get all suited up, spruced up, foo-foo juice on. I hated that. That, you know, every man that kissed me today smelled delicious. They really did. And I remember Joe smelling delicious all the time, but he was going out every night to meetings. And I figured somebody else was enjoying it and not me. But you know what? He came home to me. (laughs) You know, so when um, he invited me to my first Al-Anon meeting when he was three months sober, and he brought me up to the Westchester Square group up in the Bronx because that's where we lived. And I was so grateful to be going someplace out, out of the house, away from the two children. My mother babysat, and I went. And I walked into that room, and the first little lady that walked over to me was about this high. And she had on a polka dot dress. And she had white hair like I have now. And if you stick around long enough, you'll have white hair. (laughs) And you'll be wearing polka dot dresses, too. (laughs) But I liked what they had to say, you know. She sat me down in the first seat in the first row, and she says, take the cotton out of your ears and shove it in your mouth and listen. And after the meeting, we'll talk. Oh, God, I says, what did I get into? I was 25 years old. I wanted no part of this at all, no part. But I wanted Joe. I wanted that relationship. I wanted that marriage. Was there some place that was going to tell me how to have a relationship with this man that I adored? So I listened to everything that they said, and after the meeting was over, there was two speakers that night. They didn't have any topic meetings in those days, just speakers. And Mary says, do you have any questions? I says, yes, I have a question. She says, what is it? And it was a very smug question that I asked because I knew Joe had a sponsor. You know. And I says, uh, what is a sponsor? She says, you have one, and it's me. 
<laughs> you know, be careful. You want, to send, you want to be sent somebody nice and calm and sweet. Be careful what you pray for. But I got Mary, and it was just what I needed. You know, three months prior, when Joe went to his first meeting on January 1st, 1962, the night he went to his meeting was his second day of sobriety, that he, he got himself sober. And um, there was a phone call in the house, and I picked up the phone on that kitchen wall with the little short cord. Everybody could hear you talking. And uh, he says, hello, is this Joan? I says, yes. He says, this is Jean. I says, do I know you? He says, no, but you're going to know me. He says, I'm Joe's sponsor. I says, his sponsor? He's found his confirmation sponsor? <laughs> and he just ignored that, but he says to me, the next question he said to me was, do you have any booze in the house? And I thought, and I says, God, it's New Year's weekend. Sure, there's booze in the house. But I thought for a second, and I says, oh, my God, they're all going to come back here and drink now. <laughs> Because, you know what, I didn't know anything about you or you or you or this room or Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew nothing. In 1962, there was nothing going around except an article that I read in the Saturday Evening Post uh, about Bill W. getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I showed that article to Joe and I said, you really ought to read this, he says, he, that's good for him because he's an alcoholic, I'm not. You know, but um, he says to get rid of the booze. And I says to him, you know, that costs a lot of money. <laughs> he says, just get rid of it. And when I bring him home, we'll talk. And I'll never forget my mom. We lived with my mom at that time because we had taken a geographic and we lost everything and went back to the Bronx to live with mom. And we lived in one room in her apartment with, two ch with one child. And... Uh, Mom helped me put the empty, after we emptied them down the sink, my mom helped me put them on the dumbwaiter. In those days, they had dumbwaiters. <laughs> we stacked them all up there and brought them down. And um, Joe came home that night, and Jean sat with us for about three hours on a Saturday night, talking and telling us all about Alcoholics Anonymous and about himself, because he lived out on the streets before he got sober. And when it came time for Jean to go, I wanted Joe to go and Jean to stay. <laughs> because at that time, Jean had what I wanted. He, he had sobriety and, you know, he wasn't married. I wasn't looking to marry him. I just wanted what he had, you know. And uh, it says that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you want what I have, do what I do, right? We tell people like that in Allen on too. If you want what I have, do what I do. But uh, not everybody wants to do everything that you want to do. You have to have the willingness to do anything today, right? So that was my introduction to sponsorship, and I was a little darn jealous. I wanted a sponsor too. So that's why I asked, what is a sponsor? And she says, and you have one, and it's me, and I want you to do this, this, and this, and I want you to call me every morning at 730 and I says, I can. I'm getting a little girl off to school, and I'm nursing the new baby. I had a brand-new baby by that time, brand-new baby boy. And, um, but you know what? I did what she told me to do because that was the first order of my direction, that good orderly direction that we learn here in our rooms. Oh, thank God for AA. Thank God for Al-Anon. And before I go any further, I want to thank Alcoholics Anonymous 
for giving me the husband I always wanted and the son I never knew. Thank you so much for that. You did a great job giving me back my man. A great job. I'm carrying a little turtle with me tonight because my good friend Tina that I've known for over 25 years, um, when I got into her car today to drive up here, I live out in Suffolk County and Tina lives in Nassau County. And I drove to her house and she drove the rest of the way. It makes it a little easier for me. As you get older, you can't drive that much. But I still do drive because I get my body to a meeting five days a week. Five days a week I get to meetings. I do telephone service. Two times a month I do telephone service for Suffolk County. And that's on the phone like you do in your big book. In your big book, um, I know Joe used to do it all the times too. But I carry this little turtle and it says enjoy the journey. Oh, I am enjoying your journey. I am enjoying it and I hope you enjoy yours too. You know, never quit before the miracle happens. So our miracle started that night when I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I knew there was something I had to change about me because I hated myself. He was sober. He was getting all cleaned up. And I was still a 25-year-old old hag at home <laughs> waiting for him to come home and arguing when he went to an AA meeting. Oh, my God, when women tell me that today, I want to slap them down. <laughs> slap them down. <laughs> Because, you know, that saved my life. AA saved my life. Al-Anon gave me my life. So I started going to Al-Anon meetings. And the very first job I got on the very first night, they made me the greeter at the door. I stood at the door. I was very bashful. Can you imagine I was bashful? I'm no longer bashful. Charlie's having a good old laugh over there because he knows me a long time. I'm no longer bashful. And... Um, they made me the greeter, and I loved that job. And then three months down the road, my sponsor, Mary, says to me, you did such a great job as the greeter. She says, next week when you come, I've got a new job for you. I says, well, what is it? She says, we're going to make me the chairman. I said, oh, God, thank you. They know who they've got here. <laughs> I read that literature that they gave me. I'm doing what they tell me to do so they know I could be the chairman. So that next week, you know, I went up to that group an hour early, but Mary was there an hour early. And all week long, I went searching in Robert Hall clothes and any other clothing store looking for a polka dot dress because I wanted to look like those women in the rooms that I met the first meeting with their silver hair, white hair, you know. And um, never found that polka dot dress. But I have a polka dot shirt today, which I love. I would have worn it today, but it didn't match anything. So I thought you'd forgive me. <laughs> um, so I, I went up there early, an hour early, and I said, okay, Mary, I got here early, so you could tell me how I open it up, how I read. Thank you, Ben, for being the opener tonight at this welcome meeting. Thank you for that. And I wanted to read everything. And she said, what are you talking about, dearie? I hated that when they called me dearie. But she says, no, you're, not, you're the chairman. I says, right. So I have to open up the meeting and say the things. I don't have them memorized. She says, dearie, you're the chairman. You see those chairs over there? You're going to. Well, I didn't laugh that night. 
I, I really didn't laugh. But you see those chairs? You take them and you're going to set them up in rows in 10 across. That's the chairman's job. And when the meeting's over, you're going to take them and break them down and put them back in the corner. Oh, God, that, that ego that I walked in that room with that night, that went poop, <laughs> poop, it deflated. It deflated with me. <laughs> and I was like the wicked witch of the West that melted on the floor. And, you know, all week long I was bragging to Joe, Joe, what do you do at your group? What's your job? You know, with that very smug, arrogant attitude. What do you do at your group, Joe? He says, Joan, you know I'm still the coffee. I'm, I'm, he didn't say still. I said still. He says, I'm the coffee maker. I says, you're still the coffee maker? <laughs> you know, you're six months Zumba, and you're still the coffee maker? He says, yes. And I says, they made me the chairman. <laughs> <laughs> And all he did was walk in the kitchen and pour himself a cup of coffee and ignored me. And I was very hurt by that. I turned on my side in bed that night. I mean, I really didn't even want to kiss him goodnight. <laughs> That's how I carried resentments then. <laughs> you know, but um, I've learned differently today through Al-Anon. But that night when I went home after that meeting, after stacking the chairs and putting them out and then putting them back, I didn't tell Joe that story for about six, seven months. I says, he doesn't have to know that. <laughs> you know, it took me about three years to be the chairman of the group. I had to go through the lineup up there. Those old-timers were tough in Al-Anon in those days. You talk about the old-timers in AA, they were tough. The old-timers in Al-Anon were tough, too. You know, the first time I met Lois and Bill, I was four months in program, and our sponsors took us to... Uh, New York City to the uh, Bill W. dinner. They treated us because we had no money in those days. And they treated us to the dinner. And I'll never forget the speakers that night. They introduced uh, the Al-Anon speaker was Lois W. And I said, I said to my sponsor, who was that little lady up there? She says, Jerry, if you read the book that I gave you, <laughs> she says, she wrote it. I says, oh, my God, do you think she'll autograph it for me? <laughs> right, when I look back at the things that I said, I was so darn embarrassed, you know. But I'm so grateful that I came into Al-Anon when I did. So grateful that I hung with the old timers, that I met Lois and Bill, went up to Stepping Stones. So, you know, we were allowed then. You didn't have to call and make an appointment to go up. You could just call on a Sunday and say, is it all right if we come up? And God, it was so wonderful in the summer. Lois would come out into the garden, and we would sit, and we would have tea or coffee, whatever she wanted. Joe would go in the house. There was always a group of men that were in the house, you know, and um, they would talk, and Lois and I would talk. And it was so, I'm so grateful for those things. I, I can't tell you the gifts that I got from this program all in one 15-minute talk, 20-minute talk, because they are so many, I, so many. I've lived a lifetime of 52 years, so there's a lot of stories. My sponsees call me sometimes today with problems that they have. I can tell them 100 problems that I've had that are similar. But we get through it because life is so diverse. There are so many things that come into our life, you know. Joe and I grew like that Al-Anon triangle. You know, the Al-Anon triangle points up at the top. And it comes down, that big widespread. And we were, when we came in, I was on one side and he was on the other side. 
I always had my boxing gloves on, you know. And he used to tell me I should have been a redhead because I always wanted to fight. And I'm not even Irish. <laughs> but, you know, it was great because we grew together and we grew towards that top of that triangle. And that's what we had, you know. Coming to Al-Anon made me the person that I am today. I can save, serve my purpose in Al-Anon. I can serve my purpose in my family. We went on to have seven children in recovery. You know, they look better when they get sober. <laughs> Joe was about 5'6", but he always looked six foot tall to me when he was sober. He was very good-looking. Didn't, he didn't have to be drunk or sober to be good-looking. He was good-looking. He was of Italian-American descent, and he was good-looking. When I married him, when I met him, I was a blind date. And my friends used to say to me, you are blind. You are absolutely blind. This guy has a problem. But boy, when he walked to that front door and knocked on it and asked me out that night, and I opened it up, there he was standing in his navy whites, and his bronze skid, and I said, oh, God, I just melted, you know. <laughs> I knew something had to happen the next day. I broke up with the boyfriend I was going with because <laughs> I knew he was the one that I wanted. <laughs> and I know he said the same thing about me. I hope it was the truth, babe, was it? I hope it was. We went on, you know, to live many years, many happy years, giving birth to these seven children. We never had to take a jury graphic again. He never got fired from a job again. We eventually left our Bronx apartment, and we bought a house in Franklin Square, Long Island, where we lived for 35 years, bringing up these seven kids. They were graduated school. They got good jobs. They grew up in a family of recovery. We used to have business meetings in our living room floor once a month. We'd sit them around in a circle, Indian-style powwow, because we'd never have enough chairs in the living room. And we'd go over job situations with a big piece of oak tag. Who didn't want to take out the garbage anymore? Who didn't want to do the dishes anymore? You know, like we do in AA and Al-Anon. We change jobs every three months. We did it once a month just to keep them happy, <laughs> you know. Um, so we had this wonderful, happy life. Joe was very active in AA, as I was in Al-Anon, as I still am in Al-Anon. Um, in service, I went on to uh, become the area chairman, the archivist for many years, the delegate. I served three years at the World Service Conference. I'm so grateful for that. I learned so much from them, you know. And, um, and today I'm still active in service. I still go to our assembly meetings, our area world service committee meetings. I go to our information service meetings because that's what keeps me in tune to everything that's going on. You know, I walked up here today and I walked in the door and it must have been about 20, 30 people that came and greeted me and welcomed me because this was part of our heritage for so many years. I'd come up here with my hubby and spend the weekend. I'll never forget the first weekend we ever came up. We came up on a Saturday because we didn't have the money to spend a whole weekend. And on the way home, when it was time to leave, I cried. I says, I never want to leave there in the middle of something again. The following year, we came up and we started making it a weekend thing because this was our life. And then, of course, we'd come up to the discovery conventions all the time because I was very active in that. So Al-Anon gave me a life. It gave me a good life. And I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous 
our children all grew up to be wonderful, wonderful adults. They have good things and bad things that happen to them, but they have the tools to work with. Every morning when I get up, I put on my tool belt, and in my tool belt is my meeting list, my Al-Anon literature, my sponsor's phone number. In fact, she called me this morning. My sponsor called me this morning because she was having a problem. And we talked, and I says, if you think you're going through a problem, I says, I'm a nervous wreck here today. She says, why are you a nervous wreck? I says, I have to go speak up at CNE tonight, and I'm nervous. She says, get out of here. <laughs> you're okay, and you'll do great. But you know what? We get through because we each have somebody to talk to. Keeping in touch is very important. You know, keeping in the spin of things, in the, in the circle of things, in the circle. This is the circle of life. You know, I'm so happy that this room is filling in, and I know it'll even be more filled tomorrow night. And I'm looking forward to it. Because the more people that are here, that means there's more that aren't on the streets anymore, banging their heads against the wall. You know, I have a daughter who's, uh, one of my daughters, who's now uh, 37 days sober. It's her second time around, but it's okay. It's just a day at a time, and she'll make it. When Joe was 25 years sober, our oldest son, who was our firstborn son, developed the disease of alcoholism. He had gone into the Marines, and he came home from the Marines, and he was not only addicted to alcohol, but he was also addicted to other substances. And what he did is walk through my front door. And when he walked through my front door, it disrupted my whole family life. I had four younger children in the house. The others were married. And we saw the differences, what was happening, and I couldn't take it. And after a while, and after a lot of talks, and after a lot of uh, meetings with his dad, and broken promises by him, and I had gone through that before as a wife of an alcoholic. I knew what it was like to be the wife of an alcoholic, but to be the mom of an alcoholic is really something different. You want to take care of them. And um, Joe says, we're going to have to give some tough love here, babe. Oh, I says, that's not in my Al-Anon books. <laughs> I can't do that. He says, when you're ready, we'll do it. It took me three months before I was able to get the courage to give tough love and put our sons out on the streets, you know. And we did, and he didn't live there overnight. He lived there for three years. And he could have died, but he had a God in his life, just like we do. And with God in my life, everything is possible today. Everything is possible. My son came back into program uh, three years later, and he stayed sober for 11 and a half years in Alcoholics Anonymous. He went back to school. He became a nurse like his mom. <laughs> like his mom. Five daughters, none of them became a nurse. He did. He did. It was wonderful. What a gift that was. And after 11 and a half years, he came home, and uh, he was working in... Uh, New Mexico and Phoenix, Arizona. He was a traveling nurse. And he came home and got a job in North Shore University Hospital, and he was as happy as he could be, newly married and everything. And he had an asthma attack, and he died suddenly. He was 37 years old. I was devastated. Joe was devastated. Our children were taken back because here with this new relationship that we had with this sober man, and God took him home. But God will take all of us home eventually, you know. And um, we got through it. We're getting through it a day at a time because I had the best of him. 
the best of him, the 11 and a half years sober. God allowed us to see him become the man he always wanted to be and couldn't be because of the alcohol and drugs. So always remember that. If God takes you somebody home, that you've had the opportunity to see them get sober and stay sober. That's the beautiful gift. You know, two and a half years later, Joe passed away suddenly. We had just come home from a trip to Hawaii where we spoke at a convention, Joe and I. We were out in a new, a new house out in Suffolk County. And we came home. We were here a month. And uh, Joe got up in the middle of the night. In fact, he was leaving the next day for... Um, I think St. Louis or where was it? Kansas. Kansas City, here we come. He was singing to me that night before we went to bed. Kansas City, here we come. He was happy, joyous, and free. And that's what we're all here for, to be happy, joyous, and free. And he got up in the middle of the night, and that was it. That was it. Oh, God, I says, why are you doing this? But it's not to me. He's not doing this to me. It was their time to go, and God needed him. And acceptance is the name of my game today. As it says in your big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, acceptance is the way of life today. When I came into the rooms of Al-Anon, we were asked to read by our sponsors three chapters in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The chapter to the doctor's opinion, the chapter to the wives and the family afterwards. It was not conference-approved literature. We can't bring that up at an Al-Anon meeting today because we have conference-approved literature. But those chapters stay in my head forever because it told all about me and my life and what I went through. And I'm so happy to see you're celebrating your 75th year of the big book. I am so grateful for that, you know. And... um, I feel that I was a part of that even from the beginning because I read those, those chapters. So I was so privileged and honored to be here today. I thank Terry and Ben for asking me. I hope I didn't take up too much time. And um, enjoy your journey. Don't quit before the miracle happens. And for those of you who came here tonight seeking recovery, God grant that you find it. For those of you who came to maintain your recovery, God grant that you keep it, for it's the most precious gift you'll ever receive. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much, John. It's a very powerful message. Thanks for being in my life. Okay, with that, um, now I'd like to introduce our AA speaker, Steve S. He's from the General Service Office. Hi, everybody. My name is Steve. I'm an alcoholic. Wow. I want to thank Joan for your sharing. Uh, when I came to AA and I'd hear an Al-Anon speaker, I could hardly bear to listen, you know, because of the pain. 
shame and guilt, things I'd done to my family. And I could feel the way uh, from the Al-Anon people how much the relationships matter. I couldn't even see it, but it would hurt so much. I could only, I could hardly stand to listen to it. In those chapters she mentioned in our big book, I could hardly stand to listen to them. And um, my sobriety date's October 4th, 1998, and I can tell you through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the grace of my higher power, uh, uh, I can feel that love today and, and feel moved. Uh, and a lot of mixed feelings, you know, a lot of mixed feelings, but I, I feel good that I feel them. And that's some powerful love being shared, you know, and, uh, I want to thank you for that. And, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to thank Manuel and Lorena for the 5.30 meeting. Uh, kept my head a little bit clear for a while until I had to go to dinner and think about myself somewhere. Uh, but that was some great sharing uh, at 5.30. Quiero decir me llamo Esteban y soy alcohólico. Hola. Bienvenidos. Uh, I got asked at a regional forum recently. I'm also going to introduce myself another way. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's hard to do this, but Matochante uh, uh, Miedo. My name is. Uh, I also have a name in Dakota, and that's Bearheart Man. And so I don't know if there's any Dakota people out here this way uh, in New York, but I got sober at the Shakopee Middlewaxton Dakota community in Minnesota. So. Uh, yeah, and that's part of my my way of life. There's some things I'm finding out about my ancestry still that uh, maybe it'll come up more in my story, but uh, everything else I've been saying is in Minnesotan English, <laughs> not from Canada. Usually when I share in New York meetings, they ask if I'm from Canada, and I said, no, southern Canada, I'm from Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota. I got sober in Minnesota. Um, I, uh, when I talk to Ben on the phone, I'm still getting a little bit used to the New York pace of talking. Uh, <laughs> ben called and said, you got that registration in? You're going you're gonna to register? And I was like, yeah, yeah, uh, got the registration. Okay, okay, get that in. You get that in, we'll get that taken care of. <laughs> My Minnesota friend back home said, it sounds like everything, yeah, I've heard this a hundred times, let's get through this, you know. Uh, in Minnesota, we kind of pause between things, I've been doing it already. <laughs> My first staff trip to Canada was in Nova, to Nova Scotia, and they told me it was like an hour and a half from New York City on the plane, or two hours or something, so it just seemed like a little ways away. So, uh, you know, working a program of recovery, I got to the airport good and early. I'm not running so late for everything like I used to be, or not showing up at all. So I got to the airport, and the woman at the counter said, uh, you know, I went to check in, and then she said, do you have your passport? And I gave her a long Minnesota pause, because all the... All the problems were going through my mind, talking to my supervisor, the money it was going to cost to miss the flight and get another one, show up late to the conference in Nova Scotia. It was an A-trip, you know. And uh, I wasn't more than a second or two into that pause, and, and uh, she leaned over the counter and said, Canada's another country. <laughs> so, 
thank you, thank you, yeah. It worked out. I had a great taxi driver call me down the whole way back. We ended up talking about the alcohol they make out of some rotten vegetables in Bangladesh. Uh, and I heard uh, this afternoon from Lorena that you know, it doesn't matter what language people are speaking, you know, uh, alcoholism is it's horrible. Uh, I got, uh, I wanna, you know, the theme of the conference is the communicating our three legacies, and I'm going to share a little bit about the legacy of unity in our, our worldwide fellowship. Uh, you know, this talk of languages, she mentioned Japanese by chance, and I have a friend in Minneapolis who's sober, and he's from Japan, and he was at an intergroup rep meeting, and he, he shared the as literal of a translation as he could of the, of the 12 steps in Japanese, and uh, it sounds like poetry. You get the same message, but the, the wordings got a very different feel to it, you know, it's very beautiful. Uh, gotten to go to meetings in, in Guatemala, and I've sat in a meeting in uh, San Pedro La Laguna, which is in the Lake Atitlan area, and, and uh, there, there are people there with decades, you know, tens of years sober, and they speak Tutuil. They've never had a piece of literature in their language. Uh, but I came back to the states and when I started working at the general service office a year ago I found out that there there's translations in the works for a language called Quiche which is in Guatemala and the people there I know are, are very thrilled about that one of my home group members was having a birthday uh, I was applying I had applied a lot of people ask how'd you get that job at the general service office and I said, well, I applied and interviewed and got hired. It's a requirement to be an alcoholic, so I, I qualified there. Uh, I love the effect of alcohol. I can't control how much I drink when I drink, and I have an obsessive mind that tells me one day I'm going to drink like a normal person, despite the evidence to the qu uh, contrary. Um, and when I'm sober, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. Uh, so I know I suffer from a spiritual malady, and that, that's how I came into AA, is in that kind of shape, you know. And, and uh, the miracle of AA for me is that today I realize that uh, I'm not capable of drinking like a normal person. That, that obsession to keep considering that idea has been lifted for me, and, and uh, I stay aware of it as long as I hang around all of you good, beautiful people, you know, and, and listen to the AA message through through the, the fellowship I enjoy. So my home group, I had a, a wonderful home group back in Minnesota, and I, I uh, was in the process of interviewing, and somebody in my home group had a uh, birthday. And so, you know, some people got together to go over to her house and celebrate her birthday with her. And, and uh, she had lived on the streets and done all kinds of things and, you know, traveled to cities not knowing she was even on an airplane and, and all kinds of things when she was drinking. Now she's up at Harvard studying neuroscience and... Yeah, and she was having a 28th birthday or or so, and so we got in a car, and next thing I knew, you know, the guy I was driving with said, oh, so-and-so wants to go, can we pick him up? And so we stopped over there, and then he had a guy at his place he was, you know, reading the big book with, so everybody got in the car. And So the one guy that was in the car, he ended up in my car so many times the last five, six months. When I think back to the five, six months of when I anticipated moving to New York and when I actually moved here I 
it seems like a dream. I'm, I don't know how this guy wound up in my car so much. He didn't have a license, you know, and he hadn't been sober very long, so there was that. That helped. Um, and he, uh, the night that we rode in that car together, he was arguing with his sponsor, and his sponsor was a real badger kind of a guy. So it was entertaining listening to them, and then, and then uh, he, he asked me what I thought. This, this individual said, what do you think? And I said, well... Because he was arguing, saying he had a program. His sponsor said, no, you don't have a program. <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. And he said, and the sponsor, how can you say I don't? And he said, because you don't listen to anybody. And then the, the guy said, what do you think? And I said, I think you have a program. And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, but it's your program. <laughs> <laughs> well, he claims a light went on in that moment, so he started sticking by me everywhere I went and... And uh, he ended up uh, working the steps of AA and uh, with like three, four months sober, had a grasp of the history. You know, you talk about Bill and Lois and Dr. Bob, and he had this grasp of how AA had went from one person to another, and there are these millions of people, and he's wandering around Minneapolis to all these meetings, and he realized, like, this just happened, one person talking to another, you know. And he would just be all fired up. I'd be driving my car trying to worry about how am I going to ever move to New York. And he'd be telling me all these great things about AA, you know, like he was so enthused about AA. Um, When I got offered the job and agreed, I would go, I was so uh, full of fear. Um, I've been inventorying fear of abandonment. When I drank, I was a neglector. I disappeared from my family. I would, uh, at one point, you speak about mothers and the suffering, you know, my mom uh, would find out I, back then, you know, you changed your phone number when you moved. If looks like quite a few people would remember those days. Uh, so all of a sudden, she would not be able to get a hold of me. And then when I would call her, she'd say, what happened to your phone? And I'd say, I have a different number. And different number, yeah, I moved, you know. And she wouldn't know I had moved. Um, when I got sober, I was told, you know, you call your mom once a week, you're going to be a grown man, you're going to call her, you're going to tell her you love her, you're going to tell her everything's good, and you ask her how she's doing, right? And you find out how she's doing. And if you're going to talk to her about anything going on in your life, you're going to have a course of action, of solution for it. So when she starts to ask you worrisome questions, you can reassure her that here's the direction I'm going with that. It took her six months to answer, how are you doing? It took her six months to answer that. She just kept circling around my life trying to figure out, you know, what else was going to fall apart, you know. Uh, And it took me longer to be comfortable with the phone call, you know, because of the... Now I know it's the depth of the pain and discomfort I felt having caused that that break in our relationship, you know. Uh, Today we're we're good friends. We have good heart-to-heart talks and we're on good terms, you know. Um, so when I was going to move to New York, I had this fear of this abandonment. That I, was, I finally had all these good relationships. Now I'm going to just ditch everybody. And I, all this, uh, you know, some things I hadn't squared away started becoming apparent. And so I would be so full of nerves. I'd go to an A meeting. And for the first 10 minutes, I'd just feel kind of spaced out. And then I'd kind of relax. And then I'd fall asleep a little. It still happens sometimes. Uh And then I'd come to, and I'd be listening, and I'd feel, you know, some strength. I'd go out to my car, and within about 15 minutes, I'd throw up. So one of these days, one of these nights, I was doing that, and my friend's in the car with me, and I had to 
pull over on one of the main streets in Minneapolis and open the door and he was just laughing his head off. It reminded me of drinking days. I don't know if your buddies ever laughed at you throwing up, but it felt a little bit like that. So I'm throwing up and laughing at the same time because he thinks it's a big kick, you know. I'm telling you all this. Uh, I look back and think this, this, this guy was such a gift through that part of my life, you know, to go through this change. Um, he just infused me with so much gratitude and enthusiasm for AA. And it turns out he's from Somalia. And Minneapolis has one of the largest Somali-speaking communities outside of Somalia in the world. And uh, as he was piecing together how this whole AA thing worked, he started going to this uh, neighborhood house where some other Somali men were trying to be sober. started sharing his story there. A couple of them started to go to AA meetings with him. I had worked as a office worker at the local intergroup, and we got calls probably an average of two to three times a month from professionals asking what they could do for a Somali-speaking person who has a drinking problem. And, and there's no literature in Somali. So uh, this, this, this man pieced together how the A literature came about in English and these other languages. And today there's a, a, a version of the 12 steps that he and some others have put together being reviewed at the general service office I'm hearing his name mentioned at these, uh, I think I was one month into my job and somebody came back from a regional forum and spoke about this individual going to a microphone and five months later, the publishing director down the hall has got the 12 steps in Somali at his desk and, you know, it's a worldwide fellowship, you know, it's uh, the meeting I went to in Guatemala in, in Sutuil, uh, an individual had given me four big books, soft cover big books, it's a rural village. Uh, there's some some economic activity there, but a lot of people live day to day. So I brought these books, and uh, after the meeting, you know, brought them up to the chairperson, and some guys stayed after the meeting, and and they opened up a drawer, and there were there were two three big books in the drawer, and they were all tattered. And they said typically they take turns amongst the 20 25 members. You know, you take a book and you have it for a while. So the group owns three books, and they share them. Uh, and the books were just worn and tattered, so they were really glad to have some new ones, you know. And uh, one of the guys I ran with in AA uh, was a DCM of a district, and he invited me to his district the next year when I was going back down there, and he said, let's see if we can send him a little more literature. They they like to have some audio things because some of the speakers of Sutuil could understand Spanish spoken, but they couldn't read any of it. So he said, well, come to my district meeting. So I did, told him what was going on. And there's like 10 people sitting around the steering committee and they start going back and forth and it was starting to really lean toward, well, Guatemala's not in our district, you know. <laughs> and I had been told, you know, the, the, you know, one way of looking at it was that the districts are set up for <coughs> just kind of a geography for for us to get ourselves together and share ideas how you better carry the message. It wasn't really meant to be, uh, like the message wasn't bound by the geography, you know. Um, so they say, that's not in our district. And then here the young guy at the table raised his hand, and he was the public information chair. And he said, uh, I went to my first AA meeting in the village in Guatemala where Steve's going to be traveling to. And then that was the end of the discussion, and they, <laughs> they sent some literature to Guatemala. Um, when I came to AA, uh, you know, this article I, might be out in the pamphlet rack that Joan referenced, the Jack Alexander article, you know. Um, 
they told me to, to get a big book, you know, and read a big book, and people would reference this big book, and I was full of myself, so I, I was resentful of that nickname. I thought it was corny, so I wasn't going to get one of those big books. <laughs> and I sat in one meeting a week, ignoring their corny nicknames and not putting my name on any piece of paper for a phone call and and thinking I was going to get hit by the luck truck, you know. I didn't know I was doing that. I thought I was a little smarter than everybody else and was going to find a little shortcut and, you know, live the charmed life that was right around the corner. And uh, I ended up traveling to Mexico. And one particular evening in this bigger city in Mexico, it was very hectic. It was rush hour. I had that feeling like, I wasn't drinking, but I had that feeling like I might just want to kill somebody, you know, myself, somebody else. Eh, it didn't really matter. That rage, you know, just that rage. Everything was bothering me. The noise, the pushing, the elbow. It's a lot like New York City. <laughs> Have my days there, too. Uh, and went up to buy this little treat on a food stand. And the guy serving the food just calmed me down. He was so peaceful. And while we're waiting for this food to get made, Looked down and there was a book wedge in the wheel of his cart. And I said, what are you reading? Que estas leyendo? <laughs> and he pulled the book out and handed it to me and didn't say a thing, just looked right at me and it, Alcoholicos Anonymous, it said on the book. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. So I went back to my meeting. Uh, I was meeting in a conference room. It was part of a EAP, like where I worked. I could go there at noon. And so uh, when nobody was looking, I went in there and stole one because I was cheap. Right? Manuel was sharing about that. I was laughing this afternoon. I know that. You know, you gotta, you know I, was, I was cheap. I was a thief, right? So I thought, well, I'll just check this book out for a little bit, see if it's really anything like they say, and I'll put it back. I stole it. So I ran into a guy who said he would sponsor me. He said, well, read that book and call me. So I did. And the first time I read that book, something changed. It was the word disease. I don't know what about that word disease, but when I came upon that word, something woke up in me and I was like, there's something more wrong with me than I realize, you know. So eventually I had to come clean about that big book <laughs> in my amends. And so I talked to the guy who was responsible for that room and he said, oh, we give those away. <laughs> And all three speakers I've heard have shared about this, you know, walking around with that torment of the lies, the cheating, the stealing. No wonder I'm discontent and can't stand to be sober. Can't hardly stand to be awake, you know. So I came into AA and they, they uh, you know, the, the or maybe I should tell a drinking story or two. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh... Trying to think of one that would. Well, my last drunk was international in flavor. Right? Recovery's happening all over the world, and so is alcoholism. I, I went to Denmark on, a, on an exchange trip, a professional exchange trip. I was 
having freelance work as an artist, and uh, I wound up in Denmark of all places, and uh, I had I had tried to stop drinking, you know, I had I had made another vow to stop drinking. Um, I heard the message through a couple of public information talks before before this trip, you know, over the years. I knew there was a way not to drink because I had heard the A message at a DWI class. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't, I wasn't, <laughs> I hadn't gotten mine yet. I hadn't had the privilege of that experience yet. It was a classmate who wanted me to go with because I hadn't started drinking yet. Uh, I started drinking about a year after that and got my DWI a couple years later. Uh, but I heard this man tell his A story and I knew, you know, it kind of carried with me that there was a way not to drink. I didn't realize the depth of my powerlessness over the alcohol, you know, for a long time, right? So, um, you know, I had my first drunk when I was 17. Uh, so ice goes over well, and out east uh, I was on a, sitting on a hay bale um, in a barn. And I had a friend. It was a controlled drinking experiment. He was only going to let me have four because I didn't want to puke. Uh, that would come later. Uh, and then the next time I drank was at a keg with a friend who had had all kinds of parties, great reputation. I sat in the garage, and I found a seat right next to the keg, and that's, that's where I stayed the whole night. I took on a service position at the party. <laughs> I'm not very bright, but I was no fool. If I kept my hand on that tap, mine was going to fill up very quick, readily. So uh, the guy throwing the party came by and said, you should slow down. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy's got this great, re- like, why is he telling me that, you know? The the next morning after I had blacked out, my sister confronted me about my drinking. She was dear friend of a sister at the time and and I told her uh, she was concerned about my drinking I said that was her problem and I uh, ditched my sister for the next 13 years you know and it took me two three years into recovery to realize I had made that decision I had chose alcohol over her um, I made amends to her and that that that's where I really got in touch with the power of that neglect you know when I went to make amends to her um, you know, I said, I haven't been the brother I'd like to be. What could I do to make it right? And she said, uh, she started to ball. She was sobbing. And then she said, uh, just show up where you say you're going to be. And if you're not going to make it, can you just let us know where you are? And uh, I said, yeah, okay. That didn't seem like too much to ask, you know. Especially after I had a sponsor who had told me, if you want me to help you, come here every Thursday. So I, I, I had learned how to do that, like go somewhere where I say I'm going to be. And when they asked me to chair the meeting, which at my meeting I thought was a big deal too, and then they told me, read what's on that piece of paper, and that's it, you know. And uh, I thought I should put on a bigger show than that, you know. But they said, no, just read what's on, just read what's typed on there, and that's it. That's all we need to hear from you. Okay. But I did that, and it felt good to do just that. I just read what was on there, and that felt good. And I started to get this feeling of satisfaction of just showing up for things. So when my sister asked for that, I was able to do that. And I still do that today. And we're dear, dear friends. She's already been out to the city with my, uh, with my niece to visit for a long week, uh, last Memorial Day weekend. So, Yeah, my last drunk was in Denmark. Um, actually, it was in Norway. We took a boat over to Norway from Denmark. <laughs> 
Uh, I was traveling in Denmark. There was a woman on my trip. The reason I keep thinking of Denmark is right a couple nights before this, you know, I hadn't drank for a while because I had sworn off alcohol and, you know, was not drinking. I'm not drinking. I'm not going to drink. And everywhere we went, these people were entertaining us and there'd be alcohol poured in front of our, and I'm like, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. And, and another woman on the trip, she'd put her hand over the glass and they wouldn't pour the alcohol in her. And I was like, wow, you know. And within like two or three stops, all of a sudden, wherever she'd be sitting, there'd be a Diet Coke already sitting there. And then I'd, I'm not drinking, I'm not drinking, I'm not drinking. Drink my water, drink my water, drink my water. And then uh, we're, we're sitting somewhere, and I asked her, what's with the hand over the glass, you know? Because I knew I couldn't do it. I wanted to, but I knew she had something I didn't have. So I was, had to, something came over me to ask her, and she took time out of a social gathering. I know now she 12-stepped me. She told me her story. And it had the candid kind of details that we tell. And I couldn't believe we're standing in this kitchen and she's telling me these things, but I could feel the truth. And then three nights later, I went, we got a tour of a brewery. <laughs> and with that obsessive mind that just would love to drink like a normal person, I told myself, well, it's only to be gracious and sociable. I should try the beer of the biggest brewery in Denmark. And so I had one, and then I had another and another. And while all the people were talking, I got a little wink going with the person waiting on the tables. And they were real smooth, switching out the glasses, you know. And, you know, I didn't really feel any drunkenness. You know, by this time I was 30 years old, and I had poured a lot of alcohol through me. I didn't really feel drunk. It was the first time I experienced that. So I thought, hmm. So we got up to leave, and I could hardly walk. And I was like, what's going on? I didn't know about this progression thing until I got to AA, you know? Like, you don't get the same effect you used to get, you know? So the people on the trip were like, you all right? And I said, I think something I ate. I think something I ate, the food, something in the food. Because I'm a liar. I lie, you know? So the next stop we had, the person who hosted me liked to drink like I drink, and he had... He had some money, so then I liked that alcohol even more. That alcohol other people pay for. <laughs> so I drank and drank and drank that day, and nothing. I didn't feel nothing. And then by the time it got late at night, uh, uh, you know, I went out to the dance floor and thought, well, maybe this will make me feel different. You know, by two, maybe going on three in the morning. Not a lot of smooth people left out on the dance floor, but but I was one of them, and she looked smooth enough. She was probably, she might have been 20 years my senior, but she thought I danced all right because she invited me up to her hotel room. So I'm thinking, okay, this is this might work out, you know, because I got all this, I got this torment going on, the resentment, the fear, the hatred. Like, it just gets louder and louder, you know. And so I'm like, maybe this will quiet things down. And she throws the door open to the hotel room, and there's already people in there. That wasn't in my plan. And I stopped and looked, and they were doing some things I hadn't done yet. I had some years to catch up. I'm sure I'd be willing to do them, you know, but I hadn't done them yet. And uh, I uh, had a... My higher power showed me something in that room, and it wasn't good. It was like x-ray vision. It's hard to describe. And I was a part of it. 
you know, and I knew I had been carrying these thoughts of I didn't care about life, I didn't care about you, I didn't care about my future. I had a lot of I don't cares. That's mild language, right? Uh, and I felt a fear down into my bones, and I turned to go into the restroom and uh, felt stone sober, even though I knew I was soaked in alcohol and sick, and I just begged to be let out of that room. I begged to be made invisible because I knew if I was asked to come back in, I didn't have I didn't have what it took to say no. I knew I needed help. And I know today that that was when I admitted my powerlessness. I had no power to get out of that room. And I feel today like I got carried out of there. I walked on the hall. I felt like something was pulling on my neck, pulling on the back of my collar to pull me back in there until I got about six doors down in that hotel hallway. And then I ran, I ran, I ran all the way back to my room. And I was staying with this, I was rooming with a guy on the trip who was a retired farmer, rich, rich, you know, non-alcoholic, had never done his own laundry. Rural Minnesota farm guy, his wife has done his laundry his whole life, his mom and then his wife. He was all excited because when I was, he was going out, he was going to stay home and do laundry. My clothes are all dirty in a pile. I was going to pick which thing smelled the least on this professional trip. I didn't always dress like this. I didn't always dress like this. I got to tell you, there was one time I went to the doctor because there was a mark on my arm and when I was in college. I'm a smart college student, you know, and there's a mark on my arm and the doctor says, well, you got a ringworm. Right, because I was drinking, I had a resentment toward laundromats. I still got to work through. That's 250 in my apartment building in New York City. 250 for a load of wash. I got to pray my way through that every time I go down there. But back then, I had a lot of schemes to figure out how not to have to pay so much in laundry, right? And it meant wearing a lot of dirty clothes is what it boiled down to. So I go to the doctor, and he's like, "You got ringworm?" And I said, "Is there a worm in there?" And he said, "No, it's not an actual worm. It's a... I still don't know. Is it a bacteria or a virus? I always forget." Fungus. Okay. No wonder I can't remember which one it is. A fungus. <laughs> Lovely, right? Lovely. Being a smart college guy, I knew to ask the question. I said, how do you get that? And he said, poor hygiene. <laughs> yeah. So on this night, my last night of drinking to date, I come home. My, my clothes are in the same pile they've been in for however long, and Rich's clothes are clean. And his socks and underwear are on the radiator, and they're all light blue. They're all light blue because he, he mixed his clothes wrong, <laughs> you know. And I had, I had envy, right, because his clothes were clean. It just looked so simple. He was laying in his bed. I sat there in the other bed watching him breathe for I don't know how long. And I just said, God, I would just like to feel like that, you know, just sleep at night. If I could just sleep at night and have some clean socks, you know. Today I still I give thanks to my higher power when I see my socks all folded and put in their place. It's amazing, you know. Um, I can tell you uh, how much time what are we looking at here? Five minutes. Let's just go ahead. <laughs> Give it back to Joan. <laughs> I had uh, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about the steps and and hopefully some things about service. You know, I'm at the Sini convention, the area convention here. Uh, um, these changes I'm describing, you know, from this to that with my sister, with my mom. You know, my mom had lung cancer a few years ago, and and she uh, um, 
was in a hospital just down the street from where I worked, so I got to take a lot of breaks and come down and, and visit her, and, and uh, they had cut out a piece of her lung. And so she was in there recuperating, weak, just laying under all those blankets. And uh, uh, there was one night, I didn't really want to leave, but I had to go back for some work commitment. And so I told her I had to go, and she said, okay. And I gave her a kiss, and I said, I'll see you, see you soon. And I started to walk out, and she said, Steve. And I turned around, and my mom's a real quiet lady, you know. She, she doesn't make much noise about things. And very unusual for her to, you know, interrupt the goodbye you know so I stopped and looked and then she said uh she went like this with her hand so I went over and held her hand and she said uh uh, thanks for all those calls and coming over to my house on Sundays and uh it's the first time I ever felt like a real son you know it was such a good feeling uh and these steps of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me that you know the, the Joan talks about you know being willing to go to any lengths that's what I got asked I was miserable, and a guy, Al, this Lakota guy, with he had one eye that had had some kind of injury, so you couldn't tell what he was looking at with that eye. <laughs> and me and, the, me and this other new guy would always talk about how nervous that made us, you know? Because <laughs> we were still liars, and it looked like he could see right through us, you know? <laughs> I told him that later, and he just laughed and laughed. Al, and he, he asked me, you willing to go to any lengths? You know, you're willing to go any lengths, and I knew what he meant. Because when you go in that pit of despair, you know what any lengths mean. You know, you contemplate. You know, I, I contemplated ending my own life. You know, I had a plan. So I, so I knew what he meant by any lengths. And I said, yeah. And I knew what my words meant. And so all these things started to happen. You know, ended up getting a sponsor. He told, he, he told me to do what it says in the book. And we did that together. And I had a handful of people help me. I feel like my sponsorship has been... I always have one person I, I call a sponsor so I know I'll tell things I don't want to tell. But I get help all around me. i got four or five people that are in my council, you know, that know, know the down and dirty of what's going on with me, you know. And uh, they set me straight. They tell me the truth. And that's, that was my experience with the steps, with, you know, taking a careful examination and admitting things to another person and asking God to make me different. And then going to people and asking how they can, how I can set things right. And, and those, the direction I get from other people, it's molded my character. I realize today those amends, you know, they're the footholds. The things other people tell me to do different become the footholds to me to walk into a different way of living. Things I'll never come up with on my own. Because left to myself, I'm going to lie, cheat, steal. You know, I, I lean into deception, you know. But I feel a commitment to another person. Like what I get from the Al-Anon people, I hear that sense of commitment to other people, you know. If I can grow into that and be honest and do these simple things, like show up where you say you're going to be. Such a simple thing, you know. If I can do those things, all of a sudden my life's different. You know, i got a special person in my life today who tells me I'm a good man, you know. And i got, I got one thanks to give for that. It's not something I did. Same power that got me out of that hotel room this has transformed my character, you know, and there's still ways and ways to go. So I keep coming back too, and I'm willing to do what you're doing, you know, to, and, and all the years of service, you know, to keep coming back. I, I work at the, uh, at the office on the uh, special needs accessibilities and treatment desk, and uh, I want to thank the translators and the, 
you know, the convention from making uh, chairs available and having people around to help help the differently abled people get around here. It's it's a very friendly atmosphere that way. And and uh, and there's a you have an area chairperson, David, who I finally got to meet in person. We've exchanged dozens of emails at the office when professionals call the the office there on uh, up by Columbia University. We're on. Uh, 120th and Riverside. If you haven't been there, come up and visit. Uh, there's tours anytime. There's a Friday meeting at 11 o'clock. That's just fantastic. People from all over the world there. Um, so when, they, when professionals call in the, in the area 49 area, I send an email to, to David, give him the details, and he sends me back messages saying, "Yeah, we got this going on. We got that going on." And and uh, and that that's. That's the service, you know, that's the worldwide services, connecting local AA to professionals, to alcoholics who are still suffering, uh, and just doing all of that together. So I want to thank you for the, the service you do, the contributions you make, the, the meetings you hold, that we can reference people to, to contact with fellow alcoholics. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's terrific to be a part of that. I'm very fortunate to, to be a part of all that. I, I, um, I want to close with a story. I'm going to close with it. I'm really moved by the family things, you know, that I heard from Joan. I have a uh, my father was a uh, chronic alcoholic, and he. Uh, I'm going to speak to the alcoholics who don't make it to our rooms, you know. He wound up uh, going into a, the garage of our family home and taking his own life with a 22 rifle. And uh, I was on a road trip at the time, and. And came home, and, and uh, I don't mean to be disturbing, but I, I watched the coroner's office worker show up and, and mop up the blood, clean out our, our family's garage of, of the blood. And, and I tell you that because it's been a blessing. It's become a blessing, you know. Um, and Al, Al told me uh, about the buffalo run. And, and in the old days, he said, you know, the buffalo, the men would go out on the horses Sometimes the women, if that was their thing, and they go out on the horses to to uh, hunt the buffalo. And one of the ways they hunted the buffalo was they would move the horses so the herd would run a certain direction. And then when the herd would run a certain direction, they knew where a cliff was. So the buffalo in the front, when it went over the cliff, the others all sensed it and they stopped. And they would go down into the ravine and they would bring back that buffalo to the people. It was a merciful way for the buffalo to go because it, they would just be killed instantly at the fall. And the other ones wouldn't have to be too frightened because they were always in the herd while they were running, you know. So they'd have a ceremony for that buffalo that fell. Sometimes, he said, that the one of the buffalo would run off from the herd sensing that the cliff was coming. And so they would take that buffalo down with the arrows, you know. They would take that buffalo down when they brought that buffalo back to the people, there was a different special kind of ceremony for that buffalo because that was a different way that that buffalo helped the rest of the herd. And he said, your dad did that. You know, he broke from the herd. And you can honor his passing. He showed you what's ahead. And you don't have to run for that cliff anymore, you know. And so today, today I can tell that without getting, you know, I can feel love for my father for that. I can, I can feel hope. Uh, and I, I can I can get strength to stay in this recovery life because uh, I know those dark places, you know, those lonely, miserable places. And if you're new here, or even if you're not new, you've been here a while and, and you're, you're feeling that today, you know, I, 
talked to a gentleman earlier who's got some really hard family things going on. You know, we didn't talk about how long we're sober or anything like that, but, you know, life can be really demanding, you know, and, and, uh, and like Joan was saying, we can get through anything together, you know. I heard the other day, uh, I get drunk, but we stay sober, you know. So so glad you're all here. I'm so glad to uh, share this recovery life with you. Just want to say thank you for listening, and I guess I'll pass. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.